God speaks in his word. I'll be reading from Romans 12, 3 through 8. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving. The one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you so much, Kim. Greetings. For those of you who don't know me, my name is JJ. I help lead our community groups uh, across our congregations, but primarily in Edmond. So it's good to journey here to be with you guys today. Uh, my wife, Chris, and I have been married for 14 years. We've got four kiddos. Uh, Brinker is our youngest. He's four. We call him Brinker the Stinker. And uh, Ryle and Schaefer are identical twin boys that are six and a half, and Isley... Our daughter is 11, uh, so now you know how to pray for us. Um, last night I was uh, flat on my stomach with the uh, entire faucet taken apart and wondering if I was going to get it back together. And by some miracle I did, and then I told my wife, hey, I flooded the kitchen, can you get some towels? So that's how I prepared <laughs> to come and be with you guys. Uh, man, I'm so excited to open God's word with you. Would you pray with me over this text? Lord, we say with the psalmist that we want you to open our eyes today so that we can see wonderful things in your word. Lord, we got out of bed this morning and we walked in these doors carrying a lot of things with us. We ask that this morning you would satisfy us with your steadfast love. Lord, would you so work in our hearts and so speak to us and so meet us here today that we would be able to say with the psalmist that it's increasingly becoming our delight to do your will. Fill us with your spirit. We're stunned that you would stoop to speak to us, to reveal yourself to us in your word. So, Lord, may we bring the appropriate wonder and astonishment as you stoop to speak. Lord, give us ears to hear, we pray. Amen. They found his body alone in an abandoned bus in the Alaskan wilderness. In 1990, Chris McCandless began withdrawing from society until in April of 1992, he hitchhiked to Alaska where he started down a snow-covered trail with a bag of rice and a rifle alone. He managed to survive for more than 100 days and he's thought to have died in August of 92 and in September, they found his body. Whatever Chris McCandless was searching for on its own, it's a pretty good guess that he didn't think he would find it in community. A copy of the Russian novel, Dr. Zhivago, was found near his body. And interestingly, it was discovered that he had highlighted a sentence and written a few words of his own in the margin. 
And the sentence that he highlighted in that little paperback novel found next to his dead body read this. And so it turned out that only a life similar to the life of those around us, merging with it without a ripple, is genuine life, and that an unshared happiness is not happiness. And in the margin next to those words, McCandless had written in capital letters, happiness only real when shared. Paul the Apostle, writing this letter to the church in Rome, is going to take great pains, as we're going to see, to prove to us that God has designed us in such a way that happiness is only real when shared. But if it's true that happiness is only real when shared, why do so many of us still walk alone? And why do there seem to be so many obstacles to experiencing real, deep, rich Christian community? For those of us who are walking alone, whether we're walking alone out of self-reliance or maybe out of a sense of worthlessness, these obstacles, if we're honest, at times can seem insurmountable. Some of us are more prone to believe the lie, I don't need you. Others of us are more prone to believe the lie, you don't need me. But either way, here in Romans 12, the main thing that I want you guys to see here this morning is that because Jesus makes all Christians members of one body, we can move towards each other in meaningful ways. We can move towards each other in meaningful ways. Look again at verse 3 of Romans 12. Paul writes, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. God makes all Christians members of one body. So first, we have to move towards each other despite our pride. Why is it so hard for us to move towards each other? There's a lot of reasons, but one of the most foundational that Paul wants to highlight for us here in this passage is pride, which he describes here in verse 3 as thinking more highly of ourselves than we should. If you've been around a while, you've probably noticed that when somebody else confronts you with your moral goofiness, when I'm confronted with my moral goofiness, our first instinct is rarely to own it. It's rarely to be grieved by it. Our knee-jerk reaction, our first instinct, oftentimes is to defend ourselves or to get smarter about hiding it or to try and downplay it. And if none of those things work, maybe just find somebody else that we can blame. Paul says there in verse 3, in contrast to thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought, which carries with it that whole constellation of self-preserving behaviors that we've all seen bubble up out of us when we're put in a corner, defensiveness and downplaying and blaming and hiding. He wants us instead to have, notice, sober judgment. Paul's saying, I want you as Christians to be willing to take an honest look at yourself whenever necessary. You've probably noticed that trying to take an honest look at yourself is problematic. If pride functions for us like a kind of blindness, how are we supposed to identify our own blind spots? Social scientists keep bumping up against this dynamic in their research. In one study, an author describes how when researchers ask wives what percentage of the housework they do, they'll say, are you kidding? I do almost everything, at least 90%. And when they ask the husbands the same question, the men say, oh, I do a lot, actually, about 40% probably. So although the specific numbers differ from couple to couple, the total always exceeds 100% by a large margin. 
Each of us tends to remember in a way that enhances our own contributions. Each of us tends to remember events in a way that's unconsciously self-serving. It's part of our wiring. We came out of the womb this way. So what's the solution to this? How can we see ourselves more accurately? How can we get better at taking an honest look at ourselves and assessing ourselves appropriately? Well, look at the end of verse three. He says, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Here's how to increasingly engage in objective self-evaluation, Paul says. Here's how to deflate yourself. Use, notice, the measure of faith. Use the measure of faith. His answer here is a bit difficult to understand. Scholars agree there's at least two possible ways to interpret what he's saying here. One, the measure of faith that God's assigned could mean different amounts or kinds of faith that God's given to each Christian. Similar to the way that he's going to talk about spiritual gifts later in verse 6, where the gifts given to each of us differ. But here Paul's using the word faith without any mention of spiritual gifts. And if you take the time to flip through Romans, you'll notice Paul doesn't use the word faith in this letter at least to describe something God gives some Christians more of and others less. Instead, throughout this letter, he tends to use the word faith to refer to something that God gives every person who he mercifully convicts of their moral brokenness and enables to turn to him for forgiveness and renewal. So therefore, the second possibility, and the one I lean towards, is that when Paul talks about the measure of faith, he's talking about the confidence in God that God assigns or gives every person in the same amount or measure when he graciously moves them from spiritual death to spiritual life by convicting them of their moral bankruptcy and enabling them to trust in Jesus' goodness instead of their best efforts to get to God. The wording's a bit confusing, but the point Paul's making is straightforward. What he's saying is, to become a Christian is to be given an undeserved ability that we innately lack to trust God's goodness instead of our own, and that's precisely what we're going to need for sober self-assessment. If you'll ask him, God will give you the ability to honestly look at your moral brokenness, your unsuccessful spiritual self-reliance, and pronounce yourself spiritually poor and needy. Faith is a beggar's cup. It's an open hand. As one author's put it, nobody should outdo Christians in receiving criticism because that's how you become a Christian in the first place. According to the Christian scriptures, if you think about it, the only way to come to God is through Jesus. And not Jesus the sage or Jesus the therapist, but Jesus who dies in your place to pay the penalty for and break the power of everything you've ever been ashamed of or enslaved by. This is how we come to God through Christ. But once you've approached the cross for forgiveness like this, other stuff starts to happen as well, doesn't it? You'll start to discover that you haven't just found forgiveness for your moral guilt, but you're also starting to find increasing victory in your daily battles with pride and despair. Use the measure of faith, Paul says. Using the cross as our measuring stick reminds us that we can be needy and morally bankrupt before God, and yet at the same time, counterintuitively, astonishingly, loved and accepted by God because of Jesus. This is sober self-assessment according to the measure of faith. 
And Paul knows that pride is going to find less and less to feed on in that kind of environment of humility and admitted bankruptcy. However, this isn't primarily a sermon about pride. Notice that Paul's not just talking about our pride generally or in the abstract. As one scholar likes to say a bit provocatively, if you can't give an example of something, it's not true. So here in our passage, Paul wants to talk about pride, but he wants to talk about it very specifically as a thing that keeps us away from Christian community. We know this because he's going to go on to talk about how we don't all have the same function, verse 4, and how we each have unique gifts with which to meet the needs and deficiencies of other Christians, verse 6. We also know Paul is thinking about pride specifically as it keeps us away from Christian community because immediately after telling us not to think more highly of ourselves than we should in verse 3, he starts his very next sentence in verse 4 with the word for. In other words, don't be proud and self-reliant, Christians of Rome, for you're not your own, for you're not alone. For you and I are members one of another. We're interdependent. Because pride is this thing that's always tempting us to reject interdependence for the illusion of self-reliance. If pride could talk, it would probably say something like, I don't need you, I can do it myself. A pastor in his 50s was recently asked by someone in their 30s, if you could give my generation one piece of advice or encouragement, what would it be? The pastor wisely replied, you're the generation most afraid of real community because it inevitably limits your freedom and choice, get over your fear. We are the generation, many of us here, who are most afraid of real community because we know that it does inevitably limit our freedom and our choice. But what our culture so often fails to see is that there's actually no greater slavery than selfishly keeping our options open because nothing leaves us feeling emptier than living for ourselves. Self-reliance isn't actually a real option on the table. It's always just an illusion. And though we all know that the pandemic has brought increased attention to the damaging effects of isolation, long before 2020, as a result of our culture's worship of keeping our options open, we were already a chronically lonely nation. In fact, all the way back in 2001, a sociologist named Robert Putnam released a famous book on how we become dangerously disconnected from each other in America. He titled it Bowling Alone because of a phenomenon he discovered where just as many people statistically are bowling today as 50 years ago, but bowling leagues are dying. In other words, Americans are still bowling, they're just bowling alone. Now, 20 years after the publication of that book, as one writer's put it, we've graduated from bowling alone to scrolling alone. And it's even starting to affect us physically. Doctors are increasingly finding that loneliness causes an insidious type of stress that leads to chronic inflammation and increased risk of heart disease, arthritis, and diabetes. Several large, credible medical studies are now claiming that loneliness has the same effect on mortality as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. We have to fight to keep moving towards each other. And Paul's saying, Good news. In spite of our pride, because of Jesus' cross work, we can move towards each other. But once we've started to confront this pride that keeps us isolated from each other, it begs the question, what does it actually look like to move towards each other in concrete 
in meaningful ways. Well, the good news is Paul spends the rest of our passage explaining to us what it looks like. Jesus has made all Christians members of one body, so not only can we move towards each other despite our pride, but we can also move towards each other by miraculously meeting needs. We can move towards each other by miraculously meeting needs. Look again at verses 4 and 5. He writes, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. I want you to notice three massively important things Paul says to you if you're a Christian here today right off the top. One, we are many. In other words, we're individuals with unique value. We're made in the image of God. But two, further, we're in Christ. We no longer approach God on the basis of our own moral efforts. But instead, now, when the Father looks at us, he sees Jesus. And further, three, we're members one of another, which means as a result, we now belong to each other in a new, meaningful, life-giving, and permanent way. Notice Paul says there in verse 4, we do not all have the same function. In other words, this isn't just a call to check a box, mark community, so well-meaning people here in Frontline Shawnee will stop asking you if you've joined a community group yet. God's actually designed his church in such a way that when you show up, whether you feel like you do or not, you actually have something to offer. You can make a difference and meet real needs as God's Spirit empowers you in unique ways. And the proof is right there in verse 4. We don't all have the same function. If you're a Christian, Paul's saying, you're not just unique, you're uniquely needed. You're not just uniquely needed, you've actually been miraculously gifted by God to bless and to serve. Now notice how Paul illustrates this for us. He says, you want to understand how the church was designed by Jesus to function? Just think about what you already intuitively understand about how your own physical body functions. The church is like your physical body. In one body, we have many members or body parts, and it's pretty obvious that they don't have interchangeable functions. It's the same way in the church. When you break your leg, your ear can't just sub in. In a healthy body, every member participates at the same time. In fact, everybody has to participate at the same time for the body to have any chance at real health. Paul's saying there's no B team or bench in the local church, and you can't ever let someone else's giftedness intimidate you into paralysis. He says we do not all have the same function. We only compete in the church if we're competing for our own glory. We only operate out of a scarcity mindset instead of a multiplication mindset when we're fighting for the spotlight. People under 20 when polled, as many of you are probably increasingly aware, are starting to declare their aspiration to grow up to be social media influencers. They're under some misguided notion that this is actually a career they can aspire to. Everybody wants to be on stage all of a sudden, and nobody wants to sit in the audience. And for these young adults, if all the world's a stage, as Shakespeare wrote, that means that only a tiny handful of us can actually be happy or play a meaningful part. But God's church, Paul's saying, is not that kind of shallow, win-lose proposition. There can only be one starting quarterback in a high school football team. There can only be a handful of so-called influencers. But there are no redundant or second-class members 
of Christ's church. Some of you might remember the infamous story in Mark 10 of two of Jesus' disciples basically begging to ride shotgun in what they thought would be Jesus' political victory parade. Another example is one of the most damning biographies in the whole Bible found in the Apostle John's words in 3 John 1.9. He writes, I've written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. The old King James reads, Diotrephes, who loves to have preeminence among them. Verse 5, Paul says, you're members of one another. He's now building on this idea of us all having different functions by also saying that we're members one of another. In other words, we're not only are none of us more valuable or indispensable than any of the rest of us, but furthermore, none of us can actually survive or thrive spiritually on our own. Now, some of you might object at this point and ask, why are you riding me, JJ? What's the big deal? Who cares if I do this Christianity thing alone or not? I'm a good, upstanding, independent American. I was raised to be self-reliant. I have the right to live my life in any way I choose, so long as I respect the equal rights of others to do the same. I believe people should be permitted to run their own lives as they wish. Short answer to that is that Scripture doesn't care if you're a political libertarian, but it absolutely won't let you be a spiritual one. God in his wisdom has called you to love a particular people in a particular place. And none of us can aspire to be left alone spiritually without implicitly making a decision for other people to leave them alone spiritually. Living in Christian community, Paul's saying, isn't something we can opt out of because Jesus has already permanently opted every Christian in. We are, verse 5, one body in Christ. Many years ago, I met an amazing woman, let's call her Amy, who was in a severe car accident through no fault of her own, which left one of her arms still attached, but totally paralyzed. After her accident, she's carried that arm ever since in a sling. And that's a picture of what Paul's trying to teach us here in verse 5. In essence, he's saying, because of this irreversible reality of being joined together by Jesus, any Christian who thinks that as long as they're not bothering anybody, they can get by with a just me and Jesus philosophy, is actually behaving in the body of Christ like Amy's paralyzed arm. Christians who don't use the gifts given to them by God for the express purpose of blessing and serving other Christians aren't just absent, they're actually dead weight. Whether they're willing to recognize it or not, according to verse 5, the body is still carrying them, they just aren't contributing. It's not a question of whether Christians are mutually connected as members in one body, they irreversibly are. The question is if they're members who move towards each other to serve and bless, or if they merely exist to be served. Maybe some of you growing up religious might have heard a sermon that sounded somewhat analogous to what we're talking about today on a Sunday when there was a drive for volunteers. We're not here to recruit you to volunteer slots. We're here to remind one another of who we really are in Christ and how that should determine and dictate everything else about how we spend our time and our money and where we put our attention. Do we need workers in the nursery? Of course. The answer is always yes. But even more than that, 
We need to open our eyes to the reality of what Christ not only did for us, but did in us, and what he grafted us into. We no longer think alone or think for ourselves. Our fate is inextricably bound up with the fate of every other Christian in this local church. We don't make choices for ourselves, and the choices we make, we can no longer live under the illusion that they don't affect anybody else. We can move towards each other, Paul says, in spite of our pride. We can move towards each other by miraculously meeting needs. And third and finally, because Jesus has made all Christians members of one body, Paul's saying we can move towards each other because we have deliveries to make. We can move towards each other because we have deliveries to make. Look again at verses 6, 7, and 8. He says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to each of us, let us use them. If prophecy, in proportion to our faith. If service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. At this point, some of you might be objecting, hey, JJ, why are you demonizing self-reliance? Not all independence and self-reliance is bad. Any parent of a teenager would tell you that they long and intercede for their child to become independent and self-reliant and move out of their basement. Galatians 6.5 even says that each one should carry his own load. And 2 Thessalonians 3.10 says, if anyone's not willing to work, let him not eat. And Proverbs talks constantly about how laziness and lack of planning lead to poverty. So, is meeting others' needs really so important? Or is this just some thinly veiled form of spiritual social services for people who've made poor choices and planned their lives bad? Others of you might be thinking, you might have convinced me that I ought to do more to meet the needs of others, fine. But you haven't convinced me that I should allow others to meet my needs. Or if I do have to let others meet my needs, that it's anything less than a deficiency or a failure on my part that should trigger shame and a firm resolution to never let it happen again. Why is it so important to let other people meddle in my private affairs so that they can meet my needs? Well, the short answer is that's how God's designed his church to function. And if you don't like it, you'll have to take it up with him. We can move towards each other, Paul says, because we have deliveries to make. God's designed his church from the beginning in such a way that when he acts to give me something I need, he primarily tends to accomplish that by giving it to you instead. So you have a delivery to make. I hope you can see that's what Paul's really saying here in verses 6 through 8. You've got something for me, and I need it. When I'm in particular need of an encouraging word, God spontaneously calls it to your mind and prompts you to share it with me. When I'm unable to discern which path to take, he enables you to give me wise counsel. When I'm in danger of falling into sin, he sends you to exhort me and humbly and gently correct me. Paul's saying we've got to move towards each other because we have deliveries to make. Notice he says in verse 6, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. What he's saying is, in light of all that I've said to you up to this point, God has called you to build up and benefit and enrich other Christians, and he's equipped you to do it by giving you gifts. Spiritual gifts 
are not that mysterious or exotic. They're just God's spirit in you, blessing others through you. But the key point for what we're considering today is that the way God in you blesses me differs from the way God in me blesses you. We're not interchangeable or redundant. We complement each other. When it comes to the body of Christ, the whole is absolutely greater than the sum of the parts. So stop and marvel at the fact that God has seen fit in his wisdom to give Kim Robinson what she needs by giving it to you. If you want to get what she's got to give to you, you got to go get it from her. God's given it to Kim to give to you. What he's given you isn't for you, it's for Kim. So what are you going to do with Kim's gifts? This is how God has designed the body to function. So notice at the end of verse 6, Paul says, in light of all this, let us use them. If, if you've agreed with Paul up to this point, the rest just sort of necessarily follows, doesn't it? If this is really how God has designed the church to function, and if he's really given you something for me and given me something for you, then hey, what are we waiting for, Paul says? Let us use them. Some of you might be thinking at this point, but what if I don't know what my spiritual gift is? Well, don't hear me say categorically that you shouldn't take what are typically called spiritual gifts tests, which if you didn't grow up around the church is a quirky kind of thing that churchy people take in the hopes that it'll sort of read their mail for them. I would commend to you a much simpler and far more effective method for discovering your spiritual gifts. It begins by getting over your fear, committing to Christian community, and then keeping your eyes open for needs, big ones and small ones. Does somebody in your world just need someone to notice them today? Is there somebody in your world who's coming up on the anniversary of the death of a loved one and they need to know that that person's name is remembered and that their passing and loss is remembered? Is someone in your world having a hard time understanding a particular passage of scripture? Is someone in your world having a hard time making a decision? Is somebody feeling especially discouraged and beat down in their fight against a persistent sin pattern and they're wondering whether or not it's worth getting up off the mat to get knocked down yet again? Is a single parent in your world struggling to keep their lawnmower running? As your compassion is stirred in these moments and you move towards people to meet real needs, they'll let you know what your gifts are. God's made us all members of one body through Jesus' cross work. And as a result, the good news is we can actually move towards each other in a culture that's become increasingly isolated, self-centered, and individualistic. But in light of all the things that Paul said, take a moment and ask yourself honestly, what keeps you from community? It might take the form of temptation. Pride's always lurking underneath, to be sure, as Paul has taught us, but what's the specific shape of the things that tempt you and lure you away from moving towards people? As I asked myself that question, three things very quickly came to mind. For me personally, shame keeps me from community. Shame. I really don't want you to see me rattled or impatient or sweating as I wrestle to parent my kids. I already know that I'm daily in need of Jesus' correction, but I'm kind of embarrassed to have you there when he does it. 
I know I don't have it all together, but some days I don't quite feel up to so vividly proving that to you. Shame keeps me from community. A busy, chaotic heart keeps me from community. There are moments when I think about moving from the irritable, hurried, kitchen chaos in my heart and week to trying to listen to and focus on somebody else out of the kind of heart of quiet peace that's required to hear from Jesus and bless others, and I just want to tap out and hide from you. I don't want you to see the inhospitable state of my heart in those moments. Sometimes it's nothing as dramatic as shame or a busy heart. Sometimes I've noticed I don't move towards others because I just feel tired and selfish. In those moments, I'm more tempted to believe lies about selfish comfort and self-indulgence and what's going to end up really leading to joy and satisfaction for me over the long run. For others of you, it's not so much that you're tempted away from community. As much as you're wrestling with hurt, you've been traumatized when you have taken the leap and showed up for what was ostensibly Christian community only to be disappointed and wonder if you found something else altogether. And that happens a lot, and you're not alone in that. There are obviously a whole host of painful things at play there, but I'll just name a couple. One reason we try community and come away disappointed is that we don't realize that we're approaching it naively. We were promised community, or we assumed we'd found community, but it turns out that we just merged with a bunch of people hiding in plain sight. In the words of one author, what looks like community on the surface can sometimes really just be a big group of people considering their own needs in the presence of others. When you find a big group of people merely considering their own needs in the presence of others, and you show up in that kind of room when you're hurting and longing to be truly known and truly loved, it can be deeply painful. Another common reason we try community and come away disappointed is we didn't realize that we were approaching it passively like consumers, that we were approaching it passively like spiritual consumers. Paul Miller explains, the biggest problem that Christians have in searching for community is just that. You don't find community, you create it through love, Miller says. Look at how this transforms the way you enter a room full of strangers. Our instinctive thought is, who do I know? Who am I comfortable with? Hey, there's nothing wrong with those questions. But the Jesus questions that create community are, who can I love and who's left out? Miller says, there are two different formulas for community formation. You pick. One, search for community where you're loved, inevitably become disappointed with community. Or two, show God's love and together create community. I think Paul Miller's right. If we only try and search for community where we're going to be loved, we're inevitably be disappointed. If we move towards one another with the intent of showing God's love, we'll slowly start to create community. But the most terrifying issue with that truth is that in order to show God's love, we have to first experientially know God's love. The single greatest factor that's going to determine your experience of Christian community long before you ever walk through a door is your prior experiential knowledge of God's love for you. In the words of one author, you need to hear in the center of your being the voice of God saying, in spite of everything you've done, I love you. 
And when you're tempted to be cynical or dismissive of Christian community, that's your opportunity to look harder at the cross. You're not going to see the beauty of this community that is frontline Shawnee until you start to see the ugliness and the horror of that cross. Until we've grasped in a deep way that hits us in our heart what it actually costs to create this community, we're either going to treat it like it's so cheap it's not worth our time or like it's so fragile that it's only a matter of time before it betrays us. And if you're honest with yourself today and you realize that you're having a hard time believing in the promise and the possibility of Christian community, this is a moment for you to consider the fact that for your sake, Jesus gave up his position and place. He actually gave up his community. And when he hung on the cross, carrying your sin, carrying the ugliness of my sin, The scripture tells us that he actually cried out in agony and longing as he was dying. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why is it taking you so long to come to my rescue? And it's really only because Jesus chose to be forsaken by his community in that moment that we can ever hope to have community with each other. The cross reminds us that in his pain, Jesus hung alone so that in our pain, we might hang together. This is the good news of what Scripture calls the gospel. Stand with me now as we prepare to take communion.